Good morning, I have the privilege of reading for Rod this morning, so please turn with me to Zechariah 8. If you have a blue Bible, I believe it's page 773. And if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. The word of the Lord Almighty came to me. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I am very jealous for Zion. I am burning with jealousy for her. This is what the Lord says. I will return to Zion and dwell in Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the faithful city and the mountain of the Lord Almighty will be called the holy mountain. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Once again, men and women of ripe old age will sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each of them with cane in hand because of their age. The city streets will be filled with boys and girls playing there. This is what the Lord Almighty says. It may seem marvelous to the remnant of the people at that time, but will it seem marvelous to me, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will save my people from the countries of the east and the west. I will bring them back to live in Jerusalem. They will be my people, and I will be faithful and righteous to them as their God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. How's everybody doing today? You guys know what the Upers call us who live in, on the other part of the state? Trolls. <laughs> Trolls live under bridges. I don't know. We know that about you, Tim. <laughs> no, Tim's such a great guy. And uh, New City Kids, uh, what, what a joy to have them as our neighbors and to get to partner with them in our neighborhood. Um, okay, we've been going through the Minor Prophets, and we're coming to the end and if you've been here, hopefully you're seeing that uh, the, minors are not, the minor prophets are not so minor. Um, they're very important. They help really tell a large part of the story as it plays itself out in the Old Testament. And we've talked about uh, Israel, God's people, biblical Israel, not modern-day Israel. Uh, Israel in the Bible and the biblical story is both a place and a people. Uh, they're a people that God saved, rescued out of Egypt, slavery, took them to the desert to marry them, to become husband to them. Israel became God's bride. Then he placed them in a special place. Uh, that land is called Israel. And here's where you have to ask yourself, why is God doing all this? Why is God marrying a people? Well, yesterday I did a marriage and, um, I mean, my, mar my marriage is partnership. My wife and I, we're, we're in total partnership together. Uh, that's what Israel is. Uh, Israel is God's partner. To do What? Well, that land that God is giving to them is really the new Eden, and God, through his new people, is once again planting his garden, and Israel is given the same mission that God gave to Adam and Eve, which is to make the whole world a garden. And how did this go? Well, for a whole millennia, God is patient. He is this long-suffering, patient husband in spite of the fact that Israel is unfaithful, 
other lovers, forsakes God, lives for itself, and does not count anything to, to, to partner with God in this, in this incredible mission that God's given to her. So God, at some point in the game, has enough. And so first, uh, the northern kingdom is, is done away with uh, because Israel's split in two uh, by the Assyrians, uh, but God spares the southern kingdom, Judah. Uh, you'd think this would be a wake-up call for Judah, but they even become more wicked after this. And let me take you to 2 Chronicles 36. This isn't the last chapter in our Old Testament, but our Old Testament is identical to the Jewish Bible with the exception that our order is different and the Chronicle books are the last books of their Bible. So this is the last chapter of the Jewish Bible and this is what it says. The Lord sent word to them, to, to Judah, through his messengers again and again because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place, his house. They mocked God's messengers. They despised his words. They scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people and there was no remedy. So God comes to this place where there's literally no remedy to this whole thing. And uh, God raises up another uh, superpower from the east, the Babylonians. They come and take out much of Judah. They surround uh, Jerusalem its most important city, lay siege to it. When you lay siege to a city, uh, you're essentially trying to starve that city. Uh, the Book of Lamentations, which is also in our Old Testament, was writ written during this time. It describes what this siege was like for the people living in Jerusalem. In fact, this is what Lamentations says uh, in Lamentations 4. It says, the tongue of the infant cleaves to the, its palate for thirst, young children big for bread. Those who once feasted extravagantly lie destitute in the streets. Those who are brought up in scarlet clothing wallow in garbage. Their appearance has become blacker than suit. They're not recognized in the streets. Their skin is shriveled to their bones. Hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They became their food. That's horrific. And the last chapter of the Jewish Bible, 2 Chronicles 36, continues. It says, God brought up against them uh, the king of the Babylonians who killed uh, their young men. We're talking about uh, Judah. <laughs> With the sword in the sanctuary, he did not spare young men or young women, the elderly or the weak. God gave them all into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. And then he carried to Babylon all the treasures of the Lord's house. They set fire to God's house. They broke down the wall of Jerusalem. They burned the palaces and destroyed everything of value there. And he carried into exile to Babylon those who escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him of his, and his successors until the kingdom of Persia came to power. And the land enjoyed its Sabbath, Sabbath rest until the 70 years were completed in fulfillment of the word of Jeremiah. And so it's devastated, it's, it's destroyed, and, and, and those that survived this um, are exiled off to Babylon, and, and this exile is, is very much like Adam and Eve getting kicked out of the Garden of Eden. Um, that temple uh, to them is more than just four walls, it's more than just a place of worship. Um, to them, this is God's house, it's his, it's his home, it's heaven to them. 
Uh, this is the garden of the Lord. And so this meant not only wreckage to their reality, but, but wreckage to the whole story of God, of, of who God is and who they are. And their whole identity at this point is wrecked. And God is no longer with them. It would be equivalent to us today to have the Holy Spirit just taken from us. Now imagine if our Bibles ended this way. But here's the last verse in 2 Chronicles 36, the last verse of the Jewish Bible, there is this tiny glimmer of hope. It says, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the Persians come to power now. In order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put this in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, is talking about Israel's God, calling him the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build a house for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up. Literally, that word in Hebrew is aliyah. It's to make aliyah. And may the Lord their God be with them as they make aliyah, as they return to their homeland, to Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple. Sure enough, 70 years later, after being refugees in Babylon, a remnant makes Aliyah. They return home to resettle the land, to rebuild Jerusalem, rebuild God's house, to replant the garden of the Lord. In fact, it's interesting, the same phenomenon is kind of happening today. Um, Jews from all over the world are returning to their homeland in what they call Israel. And I don't want to get political here because Christians don't take any sides in this. Um, and, and, and we don't politicize this. We're agents of reconciliation in this whole process, but it is going on. And uh, they, they thought when we lived there, I was Jewish because they would always ask me, are you making Aliyah? Are you coming uh, back to your homeland? And I'm, I'm like, I'm not Jewish. Um, but imagine, because this is whispered about today. If you live there, you can hear these whispers. Um, about building the temple, of which Christians ought to really care really very little about, just, but it's curious. And uh, in fact, let me just show you where, 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 where the temple once was. Um, it was right there. That is Temple Mount uh, today. That golden dome is called Dome of the Rock. It's the third most holy site in the religion of Islam. That's where they believe uh, Muhammad uh, ascended to heaven. And that is also where the first temple, Solomon's temple, and the temple during the time of Jesus was. It's in that same spot. I mean, any attempt to rebuild a temple there would pretty much trigger World War III, I think. Um, and that's kind of what happens when, in our story, Israel, uh, Judah returns to their homeland to start resettling Jerusalem and rebuilding the temple. Because Samaritans are also living in the land and they are stronger and greater than the Jewish people returning and they violently bully the Jews as they start rebuilding the temple. And so they just stop and quit. Totally demoralized. And I want you to know, like for them, this, this is tragic because 
The land is just land if there's no temple. The temple to them is the Garden of Eden, and Eden needs the garden. It, it, it needs the place where God lives. It needs God's presence. I mean, think about how our Bible ends in Revelation 21 and 22. It's the new Jerusalem, the new Eden coming down to earth and finally being a place on earth with God living right in the heart of it. That's why the world is going to be a paradise again. It's because God is going to be present. Now it's into this scene of them being totally demoralized that Zechariah enters. And this is a big book. It's 14 chapters. The first eight chapters of Zechariah are a series of eight very bizarre dreams that God gives to Zechariah that essentially show Zechariah for him to tell the people that God's house is going to be rebuilt. In fact, that's what we just read in chapter 8. The word of the Lord Almighty came to me. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I'm very jealous for Zion. I am burning with jealousy for her. This is what the Lord says. I will return to Zion and I will dwell in Jerusalem. And then Jerusalem will be called the faithful city, the mountain of the Lord Almighty. It'll be called the holy mountain. This is what the Lord Almighty says once again. Compare this with what was said in Lamentations. Men and women of ripe old age will sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each of them with cane in hand because of their age, and the city streets will be filled with boys and girls playing there. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Or one of the bizarre dreams that Zechariah has in Zechariah chapter 2. Listen to how this goes. He says, then I looked up, and there before me was a man with a measuring tape. He's describing this dream. And I asked, where are you going? He answered me, to measure, measure Jerusalem, to find out how wide and how long it is. And while that angel who was speaking to me was leaving, another angel came to meet him and said to him, run and tell that young man, Jerusalem will be a city without walls because of the great number of people and animals in it And I myself will be a wall of fire around it, declares the Lord. And I will be its glory within her. That's that's an awesome dream. Because God is saying, not only will Jerusalem be rebuilt, not only will the temple be rebuilt, he says, but it will be a city without walls. And I myself will be a wall of fire around her. Why do we have walls? Walls protect and keep people out. God says Jerusalem is going to be a city without walls. It's not going to need walls because God says, uh, I'm going to be this wall of fire protecting her. And not only is God going to protect her and surround her, but God also says the glory of God is going to fill her. I've always told uh, my daughter Kate this, um, that when it comes to beauty, don't listen to the lies of the world. The lies of the world uh, obsess over uh, external beauty. Um, But I I, I, I tell her true beauty is really what's on the inside of a person. It's, It's the inner beauty 
of God actually in us. This is what God's saying about Jerusalem. Jerusalem's gonna be stunningly glorious and beautiful. It's gonna have this inner beauty because God says that beauty is me. That glory is me within her. In fact, so glorious and beautiful will Jerusalem be that the nations, the Gentiles, are going to be attracted and drawn in. And that's what you read at, in chapter 8 at the end, uh, 22 and 23. And many peoples, the Gentiles, and powerful nations will come to Jerusalem to seek the Lord Almighty and to entreat him. And this is what the Lord Almighty says. In those days, 10 people from all languages and nations will take firm hold of one Jew by his tassels and say, let us go with you because we have heard that God is with you. Now listen, I don't have time to show you what I'm about to say, but at the point where we are right now in 2019 in God's story, we are the city. We are the new Jerusalem. Jesus said, you are a city set on a hill. We are the city of God. We are the house of God. We are the temple of God. And our mission then is to be this kind of city to the city of Grand Rapids. And you talk about a text that just oozes vision for crossroads. To be a city without walls. I don't know what it is about Christians today, but so many Christians have this fortress mentality where, where they, they, they want to put this big wall around themselves and keep that awful world out. So many Christians today live in so much fear that, that the world is going to hurt us, which causes more and more Christians to move out of what they think are dangerous spaces into safe spaces. Sorry, that has never been God's heart for his people. God wants to put his people on Main Street. Crossroads, right there where our world is in pain, where our world hurts, where our world is in chaos, we are to be God's people, a people without walls where the world can just freely enter and experience God. God says, I'll be your wall. I'll be this wall of fire protecting you. Do we trust God for this? I'll tell you what this means. It, it, it means that at Crossroads, we're always asking some questions. We're, we're asking what barriers are, are we putting up that are, that are keeping people away? Are, are there stylistic barriers? Are there cultural barriers? I mean, Grand Rapids is, is, is filling up with this diversity of, of, of cultures. Are there relational barriers? I mean, are we expressing the affections of Christ? Are there social economic barriers? God forbid that we ever be a, a, a people that favor certain people and, and show disfavor to other people. Are we putting up racial barriers? 
We are to be a city with no walls. But maybe the more important question to ask, um, as people encounter us, not the building, but us, are they encountering the glory of God? Is God here? Here's the bottom line. Without God's presence, it doesn't matter what we do, how good or bad what we do. It'll be hollow, empty. Two years ago, we, I, had a, I have a good friend who was very high up at a very big church in Chicago. Uh, the church is Willow Creek, and he was uh, over all of their programming, uh, namely on Sunday morning. And uh, it was at a time when I was getting a lot of complaints about our sound here. So I, I asked him, could you come? Because we like things a little bit loud, but we also don't want to hurt people's ears. Trust me on that, okay? Um, so I had him come in, and, and he just assessed everything. I mean... He read us the riot act. Will can attest to this. Um, he couldn't believe how bland this room is. He couldn't believe, like, <laughs> I can't even get into it. Like, he got off his chair and he goes, do you know that you preach like this? <laughs> Sorry, okay? I said, no, I don't. I thought I just stood there. <laughs> I mean, he just kept going and going, and, and Will and I were kind of feeling like a bunch of failures, but then he said this. He said, this is what I want to end with. So the moment I got him out of our car today, I felt the presence of God. He said the whole service, I couldn't stop crying because I just knew God was here. I'm like, yeah, that's what we're going for. That's what we want. Uh, a place where, where God is, where the glory of the Lord is among us, in us, filling us. I just think about how many people today are pursuing glory, how, how many people are pursuing beauty, and that if people could somehow find true glory, in true beauty, and to know how even God can make the most beastly of us so, so, so beautiful. Um, okay. May that be. What does this look like, though, tangibly? We talk beauty, we talk glory. Like, like what does that look like? Well, this is where the prophets come in, and this, this is where the prophets uh, tell us uh, what we are to be, uh, what this glory looks like. And here Zechariah is doing it in chapter 7, 8 through 10. Listen, listen to what he says. He says, and the word of the Lord came again to Zechariah. This is what the Lord Almighty said. Administer true justice, show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless the foreigner, or the poor. You know what he just did? Do what all the prophets are doing. He just summed up what we call the law of God. 
Micah does it in Micah 6, verse 8. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. Jesus does it in an even more pithy way. He says, do unto others as you would have them to do, because in so doing, you have fulfilled the whole law and the prophets. But you read the next verses, uh, 11 and 12, and, and God says, but they didn't listen to me. Instead, they developed their own spirituality. And what was that? Well, all you have to do is look at the chapter heading where it says justice and mercy, not fasting. It's not that the Bible doesn't ever say we are to fast. Uh, there's one day in the year where, where God's people are called to fast. But other than that, the, the, the Bible uh, kind of whispers that. It, it, it screams a lot of other things a lot more like to do justice, to love mercy, to take care of the widow and the orphan, the fatherless. So you have to ask yourself, why is there such a propensity to fast? And I think it's for the same reason that our hearts are drawn to religion. Religion is all about me. It's what I do. It's where I get to become the hero. The gospel is all about God. It's where God is the hero. It's what God does. Paul saw the dangers of, of, of religion uh, at the end of Colossians 2. He said, you guys have all these human-made rules that you subscribe to. Don't taste, don't touch, uh, your harsh treatment of the body. He says, you know, these things look good, they sound good, but at the end of the day, they lack power. These are our ideas, not God's. This is fleshed out uh, more uh, by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 58. What God says is the kind of fast that I have chosen, simply a day for people to humble themselves. Is it only for bowing one's head like a wreath and, and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day that's acceptable to the Lord? Is not the kind of fast that I have chosen to loose the chains of injustice, to set the oppressed free? Is it not to share your food with the hungry, to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked, to clothe them? You see, the place where, where we truly encounter God in his glory is actually when we love our neighbor, especially the least of these. My sister Marcy uh, was recently in Uganda. I didn't even know that she started this, this ministry uh, where, to widows where uh, people in West Michigan are sponsoring uh, their children, giving them an education and the things that they need, uh, food, shelter, uh, basic necessities. And, Recently, she said she got to go to Uganda and, and to visit uh, some of these widows, and these widows brought her into uh, the home, and the home was probably no bigger than these two stage squares up here, dirt floor, um, walls, just wood to cardboard. And she said that space that was walking into that house was holy space. Holy. 
God says it in, 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 in Psalm 68. He says, a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. This is why Jesus in Matthew 25 says we're not gonna be judged so much on the basis of our vertical relationship with God, but more on our horizontal relationship with the world. Jesus says, whatever you have done for the least of these, you've done it for me. And how can Jesus say this, that, that when we do, when we serve the least of these, we're actually serving Jesus? because the presence of Jesus inhabits the least of these. It's his holy temple. And when you and I enter that space, we are entering his holy of holies. Isaiah 58, I really challenge you to read it today. Because it doesn't only talk about the kind of fast that God desires out of us, but the promises that are attached to this and and the promises are just absolutely amazing about how God is going to repair and redeem and rebuild a world that he loves through us. But in verse 9 of Isaiah 58, uh, God says something unbelievably striking. He, he, he says, then I will say to you, here I am. Uh, in Hebrew, that is Hanani. Hanani is a word that all the greats in the Bible use to God. In Genesis 22, when God comes to Abraham, Abraham says back to God, Hanani, here I am. Uh, when God comes to Moses in Exodus 3, uh, Moses says to God, Hanani, here I am. Uh, Isaiah, in Isaiah 6, when Isaiah encounters God, uh, he says, Hanani, here I am. And what Hanani means is this. It means that whatever you ask of me, God, I'll do it. And God says, when you do justice and you love mercy, I will say to you, Hanani, here I am. I'll do whatever you ask. Now, maybe the most hopeful thing in the book of Zechariah are what chapters 9 to 14 are about. And now Zechariah is looking more into the future because these chapters now are about Messiah. When Messiah comes, in fact, in, in, in chapter 9, verse 10, it says, and he will proclaim peace. Peace is shalom. It, it, it's, it's harmony. It's, it's flourishing. It's, it's everything as God intended it to be in the beginning. He will proclaim peace to the nations, and his rule will extend from sea to sea into the utter ends of the earth. That's how great Messiah's reign is going to be. It is going to be total rule, and God's rule is what brings shalom to chaos. Zechariah describes this. Uh, he highlights how this king is going to come to this world, and I know we've heard this verse before, um, but in Zechariah 9, verse 9, talking about Messiah, rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a baby donkey. We celebrate this every Palm Sunday. But here's what this means. 
Horses and chariots in that day are associated with war. What a donkey means is peace. It means shalom. He's going to come humbly. And it says he's going to come lowly. That, that word in, in Hebrew is ani. Ani means to be poor or to be afflicted. And, and, and here's the picture that Zechariah is giving us. When Messiah comes, you will see him on a little baby donkey. And he's going to be poor and afflicted. In Zechariah 11, verse 12, he tells us Messiah will be valued at 30 pieces of silver. 30 pieces of silver? Like this is what Judas Iscariot sold Jesus for? And not only does Zechariah say that he's going to be valued at so little, but in, in chapter 13, verse 7, he says he's going to be struck. Uh, the, the shepherd there is a reference to Messiah, and it says when the shepherd is struck, the sheep will gather, will, will scatter. But probably maybe one of the greatest messianic descriptions is in Zechariah 12, verse 10, where it says, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication they will look on me, Messiah, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only, only child and grieve bitterly as one grieves for a firstborn son. I mean, people ask me sometimes, like, where in the Old Testament does it talk about a suffering Messiah? Right here. And to think that, that God, 500 years before Messiah comes, is, is preparing the world. He, he's telling us that when I come, I'm going to come humble. I'm going to come poor. I'm going to be afflicted. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be pierced. And let's not forget who we're talking about when we're talking about Messiah. We're, we're talking about the very one who created the universe, who holds the galaxies in his hands, who, who named every star. But through the prophets, he's preparing us. He's saying, I'm not going to king the way all other kings king. The way that I am going to come, the way I'm going to unleash my reign, my rule, which will be total. I'm going to come humble. I'm going to come poor. I'm going to come afflicted. I'm going to be pierced. And you know why it's this way? Because this is who God is. I don't think we can even comprehend how humble God truly is. And you see what this does then to human pride? Pride has absolutely no place with God. Pride is the antithesis to God's very character, which is why God says about pride, it's the greatest evil. Which means all of our self-importance, 
self-promotion, self-righteousness, self-anything is embarrassingly shameful to God. And it also means this. It means that it doesn't, with God, it's, it, it's not that the good are in with God and the bad are out. That's not the way it is with God. With God, it's the humble who are in and it's the proud who are out. God says, I oppose the proud and I give grace to the humble. I pray to God that we could be a people that look like our God, that look like our King. Let me end with the most important dream that, that Zechariah dreams. It's in chapter three. You have to understand at this point there is no temple, but Zechariah has a dream of the newly appointed high priest whose name is Joshua. And then you get further commentary on this Joshua uh, in Zechariah chapter 6, 11 to 13, where God says something pretty amazing. He says, I want you to make a crown for, for the high priest Joshua. I want you to crown him king. And this is amazing because never before have these two offices come together. This is going to be a priest king, a king priest. And God then says, and he's going to rebuild my house. Now, we know that this prophecy is both immediate uh, to that day, but it also has future fulfillment. Um, there is a man in Zechariah's day whose name is Joshua, who does become the high priest. And this is the person that Zechariah sees in his dream. However, we also know that this is a future prophecy because God also describes uh, this king priest, priest king, as the branch. And the branch is actually uh, a, a title attributed to the Messiah, Branch in the original language is Nazarene. And then when you apply Joshua, Joshua in English is Jesus. In Zechariah's dream, he, he sees this high priest, Joshua, standing before the Lord. Now, to stand before the Lord, that's technical language for what the high priest does uh, once a year in the temple. It's, it's when he enters a room called the Holy of Holies. This was literally seen to be as God's living room. It was forbidden. No one, even the priest, the high priest, couldn't go into this space. We can draw near to God, but we can't enter into his living space. He's too holy. But one time a year, on Yom Kippur, the high priest enters. He stands before the Lord. He's standing before the Lord, not just there as himself, but he represents all the people. His purity is the people's purity. His holiness is the people's holiness. His cleanness is the, is the people's uh, cleanness. So you can imagine what went into this day for the high priest. Weeks leading up to this day, he went into seclusion, kept himself totally unstained from the world. The night before, he was sleepless in prayer with other people around him, joining him in prayer. Then the drama of waking up the next day enters the temple. It's packed with thousands upon thousands of people because they're there to cheer on their representative who's going to go and stand before the Lord. In fact, one of the preparations for this before he went into that holy of holies, he washed not once, but five times. 
Then he put on a pure white robe. And then he went into God's living room. And Zacharias says, I saw this in my dream. I saw him standing before the angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord there is not just an angel. Joshua is standing before a pre-incarnate Christ. And, and, and then Joshua or Zacharias sees this other shocking thing. <laughs> Satan is there. Doing what Satan always does. Accusing the high priest, almost like a prosecuting attorney, making his case to the Lord. This man is just a filthy sinner. The Lord says, shut up, Satan. He said, this is nothing but a stick that I took from the fire. But here's the huge shocker. In verse 3. It says that Joshua's clothes were covered with filth. Filth there is the word for human excrement. How can this be? Let me ask you a personal question. What do you look like? You know, we all walk around with this mental image of what we look like to ourselves and to other people. I'm not just talking about our, our physical appearance. I think we also have this moral and spiritual image of ourselves. Some of us right now feel morally and spiritually beautiful. Some of us feel morally and spiritually ugly, dirty, defiled. Have you ever thought about what you look like to God? Do you even know? Do you feel beautiful? Do you feel ugly? Here is Joshua, Israel's best, the holiest man, on the holiest day, in the holiest place, standing before a holy God. And what God sees, someone as if they've been covered in human excrement. And Isaiah says the, the same thing in Isaiah 64. He says, all of us have become like one who is unclean. All of our even best uh, acts of righteousness are, are nothing more than filthy rags. Do you know this? I mean, this ought to humble us. This is why we need more than a king. This is why we need a priest, because a priest's job in the ancient world was, was to make a worshiper presentable, to make them beautiful and, and clean and holy as they approached a beautiful, clean, holy God. Here's the deal left to ourselves. We can't clean ourselves. We can't beautify ourselves. Yet in our pride, so many of us think that we can do this. We can clean ourselves. We can beautify ourselves. Why are so many of you such perfectionists? Why are so many of us such pleasers? Why do so many of us live constantly trying to prove ourselves? 
Why is it that when we have a flaw that we always feel like we, we have to hide it and cover it up? It's because we're washing. We're trying to make ourselves clean. And see, this is the problem, too, is so much spirituality today. Uh, through all this spirituality, we think, you know, if, if I just do enough good things, if I'm spiritual enough that some, in, in this way, God will accept me. God, God will, will, will see me as presentable. We can't cleanse ourselves. We need a priest. And here's the good news of the Bible. This is why it's called gospel. It's because we have one. And the high priest Joshua in this story is only foreshadowing the high priest that our hearts long for, who's going to come 500 years later, whose name is Christ. And he's going to do what, what, what Zechariah saw in his dream. In his dream, Zechariah saw how the branch Messiah washed every last speck of filth from Joshua. All the dirt, all the stains completely removed. And then the Lord dresses him. He's clean and he's pure. In fact, Isaiah uh, talks about this in terms of what Messiah is going to do in Isaiah 61, verse 10. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He's arrayed me in the robe of his righteousness as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest, as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. See the picture? God says, I'm gonna make you as beautiful as you were on your wedding day. I'm gonna dress you with my righteousness, my beauty, my glory. And how did Christ do this? Do you say, poof, to the ugly, you're beautiful. Poof, to the unclean, you're clean. No, he came to this world and a great exchange took place. This is what the cross is. All that we are, all our filth, our stains, are placed on Jesus and all that Jesus is, his beauty, his righteousness, is placed on us. And God says, I who began a good work in you, I'm gonna carry that work to completion. Last night I got to preach this with my cousin sitting right here his two sisters right next to him. He came to Crossroads last night. Years ago, he was diagnosed with a brain tumor. Cancer has now filled his body. He has but days to live. And I said, Mike Vanderhorn, the whole time he's just like, yes, yes. I said, Mike, this work that God began in you do you know how stunningly glorious you're going to be? God says that when we behold him, we're going to become like him. C.S. Lewis said, in our redeemed bodies, there will be enough joy in our little pinky to raise all the dead things in the universe to life. Which is why maybe the most important words for us in Zechariah 
or in chapter one, verse three, where it says, return to me, says the Lord, and I'll return to you. Let's pray. God, we're not gonna sing a closing song. We're gonna get up and leave in just a minute or so. God, in this space, would you just open the eyes of our heart to see who you are? You're so jealous for us. Your love for us is so spousal. You're your husband. And you wash us and you cleanse us so that we're without stain, wrinkle, or blemish. Thank you. God, may we leave ourselves and living for ourselves. May we return to you. Draw near to me, says God, and I will draw near to you. You're so good. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.